0: Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. We read of the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus and Jesus' declaration that he must be born again. Here's Pastor Garrett. And it's one of those places that as we enter into the discussion and look at this conversation that takes place, We have to recognize that there are some unique qualities, characteristics to this encounter that that are um, worth kind of fleshing out and and seeing the the nuances, if you will. And and part of it is just the fact that we get a little glimpse of who Nicodemus is here. Um, It starts out by saying that there was a Pharisee. Pharisee was was a part of that religious group that was uh, very um, influential in the first century. They were part of the uh, Judaism that that believed that the law was to be adhered to, and they were they were kind of strict with that adherence. You had the other group main group that uh, that's mentioned as Sadducees. those were the ones that were more connected to the temple and the things that happened there. The Pharisees were very, Uh, meticulous about making sure that the law was something that was upheld. It goes on to say that he uh, was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That would be the Sanhedrin. That was the the ruling council under the umbrella of Judaism that dealt with religious issues, political issues, social issues, um, and they were, as a group, very influential. And so he was a part of all of that, and and so knowing that, we, we know that he's Perceived to be, a, and, and probably rightly so, a very moral person, a very religious person. Um, from, from the outside perspective, he would have been thought to, to kind of have all of those things together. And probably even in, in the mind of Nicodemus, he was, you know, was going to be okay. He thought that, that this was uh, uh, kind of prepared him for the things that God had promised him. And so we further read in the next verse that he came to Jesus at night. Now, I'm not going to make too much of that fact. Um, some think that he might have been, and I, I think I have even suggested at times that he might have been leery of being seen with Jesus, and that's possible. The fact that John points out the fact that it's at night is, is kind of unique, a unique feature to the, to the narrative, but. It doesn't necessarily mean that. We know that he's, by his, you know, saying we know this, that he's probably being sent as a representative. It could be that, that there might be even a few others with him. But those are things we don't know for sure. But it does open the door for speculation. And certainly, some have suggested that, that this, the fact that he came at night suggests and, and points us to the fact that he was kind of in the dark about who Jesus was. And I think, too, that's a fair connection to make. And we see right away that he calls Jesus rabbi, which is certainly a term of respect. It's the term that might be translated as master or uh, um, leader of some sort, but but it was a very, very significant term. And he calls Jesus rabbi, and he says, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. They've been watching Jesus. They've, they've seen what he's done, and, and we only know of the one. We know that in John 2, he turned the water into wine. We're told that's the first sign. We don't know of a lot of other miracles, but as they have been watching, things have been done, and they've recognized that, that this is something different. They're not used to it, and, and they're asking Jesus. Then. And the question, the implied question is, who are you? Where do you come from? And, and you know, kind of wrap this up for us. From here, we're going to read Jesus's response. We're going to read down through verse 12 and just hear the flow of the conversation. Because Jesus replies by saying, very truly I tell you, or truly, truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks? Surely they cannot enter into a or enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony." I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Well, let's go back to verse three, and let's notice a couple of things that Jesus says immediately. In in the statement that Nicodemus makes about Jesus, there might be without uh, without John telling us where Jesus goes with the conversation you might think that there might be this explanation of what's going on in this background of God's promise and God's plan. But Jesus immediately goes to the heart of who Nicodemus needs to be in relationship to God. And to me, it's very interesting. And even these two weeks that I've had the opportunity to just keep digging in and, and, and with what I thought was a very familiar passage to me, I'm amazed that what comes out of that that observation and that look and that examination. I'm amazed because Jesus takes him immediately to um, the heart of the condition, if you will, or at least the condition of his heart, when he says, you have to be born again. And again, I think from Nicodemus' perspective, the idea that Jesus would be suggesting that he cannot even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God, had to be, uh, sound like harsh language coming from Jesus. After all, I just called him rabbi. This would almost be an insult with his moral standing, his religious standing, his You might even say his political standing, his social standing. He had everything seemingly together, and and the idea that he would be missing out on the kingdom of God would have been absolutely foreign to him, because he was the one who instructed others how to be a part of the kingdom of God as he perceived it. So his instructions were always geared towards that uh, that kind of understanding and of course what did he think he thought that the kingdom of God was something that you earned it was something that that was a part of this perhaps heritage first and then your behavior and and you put those things together and and you you follow the right rules and and you'll be right with God And Jesus presents a perspective that is completely void of that discussion. You can't even bring it to the table. It has no place. It has no setting. Jesus says, you have to be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are. The necessity of the new birth becomes the point of Jesus' conversation. for me i think the familiarity sometimes makes me a little comfortable with what jesus is saying here too comfortable because he starts it by saying truly truly this is this is a, an emphatic way of starting a sentence to say you know this is absolute he we first encountered it back when he was talking to nathaniel in chapter 1 telling him what he would see and and those things in verse 51. And here we have it three times where he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, this is absolute truth, Nicodemus. There's no waffling here. And so to, to preface it as, or to start a sentence with that, that statement, it's actually in the Greek, it's amen, amen, the word, the word translated or transliterated amen to us. We say it at the end of a prayer to say that it will be so, that it's absolute, this is the truth, we want it to happen, uh, may it be so. It fits all of those nuances when brought into the conversation at the beginning. It is there for emphasis to say this is absolute. What I'm about to say is absolutely essential. And Jesus starts it by saying no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, obviously, this idea of born again, and, and in fact, the phrase born again, the word again can also be translated from above, and some, some translations actually carry that, that nuance or carry that, uh, that variation. But we know what Nicodemus understood it to be because he asks a question, and it's a common-sense question, really. He says, well, how can someone that's old be born again? Do they enter into the womb a second time? And Jesus doubles down on the truth, and it's, again, I don't know. I can almost—do you ever— and if you don't, I hope you do. I hope you start reading these conversations, these interactions, and start putting yourself in the shoes of, of people in that, in that uh, uh, circumstance. If you're Nicodemus, you can almost kind of see the puzzled look on his face. And I, I can kind of picture him not even really looking at Jesus directly, but kind of looking away with that puzzled look saying, so an old guy can be born again? What? Enter a second time into the mother's womb, waiting for some reaction from Jesus. It doesn't. It doesn't conjure the reaction. It doesn't bring the reaction that he thought it would bring. Instead, Jesus answers. Jesus answers by saying, again, every time you see this in the NIV, very truly I tell you, or I think in the the older Um, NIV version, it says, I tell you the truth, that is the verily, verily, or this is absolutely true. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. What Jesus brings is this question of mystery, because He's not going to, to explain. He's not going to, to say this is how exactly this happens. He just says it happens because this is what God wants. And when he begins to lay out what it means to believe, when he ties faith in God to the person of Jesus directly, not, not from the side, not in some, some kind of uh, um, circumstantial way. He does it in a, in a direct way to say, when that faith is defined and described by your belief in Jesus, you are the recipient of a new birth. And so the, the necessity to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God, is, is, is staked on that, that new birth happening. And Jesus starts really with what, in, in some ways, as I examine this, I think it could have been the last thing that he said. Now, I'm not suggesting that would be better. Jesus, I, you know what I feel about the way Jesus does things. I think he pretty much knew what he was doing. I don't think if I were standing there, Peter tried this, remember when Jesus was saying what uh, was going to happen, and Peter said, oh no, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And How did Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. I don't want to be in that category and think that I can suggest to Jesus that he would have a better way of doing things. But in my mind, in the way I would do things, this seems like it would be more of a concluding statement rather than the beginning statement. He might start with the descriptions of faith. Look, God loves you. He sent his son to die on the cross for you. He's the sacrifice by which you have forgiveness and life. And you can't get into the kingdom unless you believe. That's the way it fits in my little brain. But when you examine what Jesus does here in pulling the truth, the reality of what God has done, and presenting that first, he then can, can talk about what happens in this birth and, and this idea of born of water in the spirit. There's a lot of debate about the, the meaning of the word "water," and some have said what well, means. John kind of, uh, uh, it was an insertion or a, an expression of baptism, but Nicodemus wouldn't have known, it had any way to connect those two things. So I don't think that's probably what he was doing here. But, but many feel it's just an expression of the flesh and the birth, the, the physical birth that is associated with water, and it was in the first century, and then the birth that comes by, by virtue of the Spirit. The work of God. And it goes back to John 1, remember when it says that to those who believe they're given the right to become children of God, and he said, not by the will of humans, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. So you have this description of what God does in this new birth. And so what follows is Jesus saying that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now here he brings Nicodemus and he pulls him in where Nicodemus is asking questions of you know, these fundamental, how can this be, which is what he's going to say. Jesus is saying, this should not be surprising to you. And indeed, the Old Testament does talk about regeneration. It does talk about what God promises and giving a new heart and, and, and this, this language that reflects, uh, is reflected in this truth. But you see, when you have a false confidence in, in the idea of your self-righteousness or in what you bring to the table... You've provided a basis for your belief that is not rooted in truth. It's rooted in what you have developed and what you have provided in in yourself and in your own presentation, your performance. Then you find yourself being comfortable without truth, comfortable in avoiding truth. And it's the very dilemma that we see so often in in our culture, in our world today. It's easy for people to talk about, if you really bring them to the place that they want to talk about the historical Jesus, they're more than willing to put an image to him, attach an image to him that makes him uh, a good person, a good teacher, a good man, a, a man of sacrifice. But at the moment that it translates into... He is the Son of God given by the Father for the purpose of, of, of life and entering the kingdom. Then you have a break because you've gone from this convenient, comfortable, uh, a confident place into a place that says you can't earn it, you don't deserve it, you have to receive it. Nicodemus had the same struggle. What do you mean I have to, you know, I have to be in this place? He, and when he asks, how can this be, he's, he's, he's in fact going to that very place. Jesus prefaces, before he gets to that, that question, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying, this is a mystery what God has done. There's no mental way for me to understand all that God does when he promises and gives and delivers upon this life that he offers. And so he says, ultimately, this is is what God has described. This is what God delivers upon. And so we find ourselves with this tension of either accepting what God says is true or arguing with him. Satan loves for us to be in a place where we're happy, being comfortable with a relationship with God that doesn't exist or, or that exists only apart from Jesus and therefore doesn't exist at all. I think, I think his biggest goal, I think his, his number one goal for people is to get them happy, being secure, and and comfortable and confident in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. And so he blinds them. 2 Corinthians 4 says that he blinds the world so that they don't see who Jesus is. And Jesus here is, is making it very clear. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus hasn't pointed to himself yet. I think that's why he knew what he was doing. He was Presenting the promises of God, the life that God gives, that he gives through the Spirit, can only be delivered through him. And and he presents the way that happens. What God does is he makes us new. He doesn't give us a new set of standards. He literally makes you new. You are born anew from above. So he presents the method of God without giving the means by which that becomes realized. Realized. I think it's very clever now that, Jesus, you're pretty clever. Good job. That's, that's what I'm sure he's going, oh, thanks, Jim. I'm glad that I meet with your approval. He you realized just how silly you are when you question the way Jesus might do something. But here you have, you have this, this presentation of, of the, 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 the promise without the person yet. He's sitting right in front of him. So, so we know you're a man sent from God. No one can do what you're doing unless that were true of him. And, the, and Jesus could have said, Nicodemus, do you know who I am? He doesn't. He says, Nicodemus, do you know what God is offering you? The kingdom by, by uh, the, the, the virtue of the new birth. And so before he talks about who he is, he talks about who Nicodemus is to be. And that's just, that's just amazing. Do, do we understand the, the power of that, of that story? God wants you to know first that he loves you. And he so loves you that what does he do? He sends his son. This is why it, it flies in the face of, we have to understand that our destiny without Christ is eternal punishment. He does not want anyone to suffer that fate. God does not want anyone. He loves the world, but Jesus said, and and he will say this in verse 16, that, that, that we're condemned already because of our unbelief. We won't accept what God has promised By virtue of the kingdom or or in in the context of the kingdom and the new birth. So therefore, we don't accept Jesus. And that's what Jesus represents to, to a world who wants to be comfortable and wants to be content and confident without him. So Nicodemus asks this question, how can this be? How can this be? Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. It's an interesting shift here that Jesus goes to that that first person plural. Some say, well, maybe some of the disciples were with him, and he was kind of gesturing and saying, well, we do this. And, and, And yet... For me, I'm just wondering if he's not just referring to the fact that he's including and beginning to transition God's testimony is his testimony and that the Spirit, as they speak, that, that that's the we he's referring to. I don't really know because we don't... He shifts back and forth, but it does tell us something. It tells us that it's very important that 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 the testimony of God has to be received and understood, that as Jesus is presented, folks, we're brought to a crossroads with Jesus. This is where we are witnessing, has to to bring them to this place where they are are, are asked, what are you going to do with the claims of Jesus? Because without him, you have no life. Well, that's, how can you say that? Now, why didn't? Jesus said that. Jesus said that unless you have life in me, you have no life at all. And I don't believe Jesus was a fool. I don't believe he died for nothing. He said that he gave his life so that I could live. And he says that he gave his life so that you can live. Nicodemus, this religious leader, Uh, And I'm telling you, what he would have known of the Old Testament, especially the first five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, he probably knew those verbatim by heart and needed no one, didn't need the manuscripts. He knew the language. He knew what was there. But he missed the living word of God because he was so... He was so content being comfortable with what he thought he knew that he missed what God was offering. Now, we know he shows up later, and I, I, don't think, I think he was impacted by this. In John 7, we see him before the Sanhedrin. Jesus is there being questioned. He said, give, a, give the guy a chance to talk. Listen to him. And then later in John 19, we find him with Joseph of Arimathea when Jesus has been crucified, that he helps Joseph prepare the body for burial. That was very significant. You didn't do that just because you thought that was the right thing to do. You did that because you knew that it had to be done and needed to be done well and right. And he, he brought his own uh, things to the table to, to make that happen. I think Nicodemus becomes a believer that he had to be confronted as an unbeliever. He wasn't coddled in his religion. In fact, Jesus held that against him. You don't know these things? You who should be teaching others don't understand? How how am I going to tell you of these heavenly things when you don't even understand the earthly things that are to shape you and provide this foundation for truth? Jesus never once falls into, the, falls into the conversation of saying, Nicodemus, you're all right, you've got, you've got it going, you know, it's, it's good. He pulls him, invites him to the place that when he starts defining what it means to believe, he's going to tie God's plan and promise of the kingdom through the new birth, that God supplies by His Spirit, it's a spiritual birth, not a physical one. It's a spiritual birth that that is a is a new person within us, and then He's going to tie it to the person of Jesus. I, I I'm probably forever going to be amazed at how this unfolds, but I but. It's the only connection, really, that makes sense. Ultimate truth. You want to be in God's kingdom? You have to be born again. What do you mean I have to be born again? How how can this happen? God so loved you that he gave his son. See, that's the expression of God's plan for you. The fulfillment of that plan is in a person. He so provides that he doesn't ask you to perform, he doesn't ask you to bring your, your own merit, That you know, whatever you think you've earned. It's all unmerited favor and to trust him. That had to hit Nicodemus right here and then right here. I wish we could have a story of what happened to Nicodemus after this. Because I have a feeling he had some sleepless nights. I have a feeling that he went back to his, his other religious leaders. And he's going, guys, this did not work out the way I thought it was going to. Here's what he said. And you know what? It's been eating at me. I don't get it here, but it makes sense here. And for all the things that I thought I had right, I didn't have the most important thing. That all God asked me to do was believe that he loved me this much. We haven't been telling people this. We've been leading them to believe that all they had to do was follow our rules that we don't even follow. And Jesus said, that's not God's plan. For us or for them. Wouldn't that be a neat story? To hear the rest of the conversation. Jesus is going to just unpack this. While making it very uh, precise and and specific. And, And these are the words we have to continue to kind of rest on. When Jesus says, you know, in chapter five, well, chapter four, with the woman at the well, he'll get very specific. I'm the, I'm the one. If you'd ask water from me, I give water that you'll never thirst again. In chapter five, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life. They pointed to me. Chapter six will be the feeding of the 5,000 and They're going to ask, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And he's going to say, this is what God requires, that you believe on the one he sent. And by the way, if you don't believe in me, you have no faith. There is no basis for saying that you know God, that you have life, let alone anything else that God would promise. Every time, he will be very, very precise. That's where we have to be able to say in conversation, Examine the claims of Jesus. That's all I'm asking you to do. Not the claims of religion, not ideology. When you explain your religion, always explain it in terms of it's the expression of my faith and relationship.